All right. Well, Christian, thank you so much for being here. Um, I'd like to start off to learn a little bit more about your story. And what do I mean by that? Well, when I say story, I mean, who are you, right? That's the age-old philosophical question. And what do you really care about? What gives you a sense of meaning in life? Could you share a little bit about um, some of these things so that we can get to know you a little bit better? Those are very big questions or small, depending on how you see it. But um, I came from, a, I grew up on a tiny island that's south of Sweden. Um, and uh, until I was 16 or 17 and went to college. So most of my life, I lived in a very small community with um, my, my childhood was in a very small community in uh, around 50,000 people. And in the little town I grew up in was 8,000 people. So very, very small. Um, there was a couple of schools and a library and, and, you know, a mayor, uh, it was just a little, little place. Um, and I really wanted to get out of there. Uh, not, not that I didn't like being there, but it was just attractive to go somewhere else. Uh, and then I moved to Copenhagen, uh, which is the main city in Denmark, of course. Um, and I lived a little bit in, or a little bit, I lived for a while in London where I studied. Um, and I worked as a journalist there for a while, which was just a reason well, it was a way of making a living, but it was also just a way of getting to meet some of the people I wanted to meet and ask the questions that uh, I wanted to. And, you know, at that point, well, I just took advantage of it and, and, and got to meet sort of heroes of mine, um, which was very important. Um, and then I went back to Denmark and I started a couple of companies. Um, I mostly did that because... I had, well, I had to make a living somehow and other options didn't feel very good. So the academic world felt um, unhappy uh, and, and, and sleepy. Um, it was not sort of high energy enough for me. Then, then the media world, the world of journalism and writing was felt as if it was falling off a cliff. Um, so, you know, there was always somebody that lost their job. It was always sort of people were fearful of, of the future um, and sort of very defensive, which was completely understandable. Um, so, and then I ended up just starting um, a consultancy. At that, at that point, I didn't have any, any capital um, and, and venture capital was just, I didn't know what that was. Um, so... It could have been many things, but it just ended up being a professional services firm because that's a way quickly to, to you know, make enough money to uh, pay people and so on, have an office and so on. And then after a while, I, my wife wanted to get out of Denmark. Um, Denmark was, she's um, from Pakistan and, and, uh, a Muslim and Denmark at that point was kind of rather hostile to to that. Um, so she just wanted to get out of there, uh, and we went to New York, um, and because that sounded fun, 
um, and then I opened an office in New York, um, which is sort of vast difference from the little world I grew up in to um, this major city that just felt endless and rich in the sense of what people you could meet and what music you could go see, uh, listen to, and and uh, the kind of people you would meet in an elevator were different than the one, we didn't have any elevators in the entire time. So it was just a different experience. And, 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 and I live, I've been living here for more than a decade now. Yeah. Wow. So that's sort of my upbringing or simple sort of story of, of where I come from. Yeah, I think uh, it's a long journey and a pretty adventurous journey, it seems like, that you've been on, starting from a small town in Sweden to then going to Copenhagen, then studying in London, you know, going down the path of journalism, meeting some of your heroes, um, exploring who you are and also like what these people are up to, and then finally starting a consulting firm, first in Copenhagen and then in, in New York City, right? Vastly different worlds, two different worlds almost. Uh, before I we dive into more about uh, a little bit of consulting and your approach to that, I'm a little bit curious about um, the heroes that you said you went out to meet and what that experience was like, because I feel like um, the people who I consider heroes tell a story about me as well. So I'm curious to know what's meaningful to you. This was a big part of your book, right? What do you care about? What's meaningful to you, right? Humans care, machines don't care. So I'm curious to know what do you care about um, and if you could describe some of these heroes that you met and what what did you learn from these experiences meeting your heroes in London? Right. Well, so I had many, but and many of them played football. But um, uh, the just one that comes to mind is a sociologist called Scott Lash. Um, he was sort of, I suppose, part of the 1990s sociology crowd around uh, London School of Economics. Uh, he was at Goldsmith, I think, but, but there was this crowd which was around Anthony Gittens and Ulrich Beck and other sociologists that talk, that, whose main idea, well, you know, they had many ideas, but one of the ideas was reflexivity. This idea that, that um, we react to, well, the way you say it, there's been a discussion about actors and structures forever in sociology. Is it the structure that defines us and our behavior, which would be like Karl Marx would say that, um, or uh, many others? Um, or is it the actor, the individual that makes decision uh, about, um, about what we what we do, uh, which would be more like Schumpeter or uh, Max Weber or someone like that. And they solve this problem by saying it's both. <laughs> uh, that the, the, the structure in, let's say in New York City of bus system, the bus system in New York City or London or anywhere uh, has a structure to it where you can't get on the bus except if you stand at the bus stop. And if you stand in the middle of, of between two bus stops in London, it's different in different places in the world, but let's say in London, uh, then you won't get on the bus. Uh, so in that sense, the structure defines how you can get it on and off the system. Um, but if nobody ever stands at a bus stop 
or if there's a place in the city where suddenly a lot of people move to that need a bus, then the structure changes. So there's this sort of interaction between uh, structure and actor uh, that I think they call structuration. It's a long time ago since I read it, but he was he was very important for me to to meet. Um, and I mean, it's a long story, and I don't know if you have time for it, but you know, if you if you grew up like I did in the '80s in uh, in um, a place like Denmark, uh, then we would have nuclear uh, bomb drills uh, every week, you know, where, where you had to, where you were just fearful that the world would end. Um, we would also talk, there would be a lot of talk about uh, climate change, even back then, and there would be a lot of talk about sort of the hole in the ozone layer, and thankfully we fixed that. But But there was this sort of feeling of the end of the world. Um, and uh, and he then described that as sort of living post-apocalyptic lives, that, that we sort of live after the apocalypse uh, because it feels like, you know, it it's inevitable. And I think a lot of people, young people today would say, you know, that that's the feeling we have as well. So he sort of described um, an emotion, I suppose, uh, a, a, a way of living where it's after uh, uh, it, the world went down. Um, and I'm not sure that's true. I'm uh, kind of an optimist in many ways. And I think humans can fix many things. And I think will fix things like climate change. You, you have to believe that. Um, and I think there, there are good reasons for believing that. But, but it was just an emotionally important moment to meet him and 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 sort of great honor and just in complete awe of him as a as a as a as a sort of a thoughtful guy yeah um thank you for sharing that so let me see i understand what exactly you're saying um when you met some of these heroes of yours one of the primary ideas that sort of has been stuck with you is this idea of reflexivity which essentially is trying to, let me see if I understand this correct, but the sort of dynamic nature between the actor and the structure, right? Or human beings within a sort of context or structural system um, that shapes the human being. And in some way, I was sort of thinking of this as this whole argument between free will versus determinism, that as actors, are we in free will and control? And do we create our own lives having this internal locus of control or is it that the world that the structures and all these events that have happened before I have arrived in this moment that define what I will do and it seems like it's neither this or that but rather this and that that this nature of this the, the relationship is more dynamic it's not binary and it's both at the same time is how I sort of understand this and then to yes go ahead no, just an example would be the stock market. Mm-hmm. That, you know, if some economists describe the stock market, they would describe it as rational and having its own life um, and its own direction. And what they're saying here, no, that's that humans um, expecting what others' expectations are. And so we would expect that cryptocurrency would go up and therefore we would invest in cryptocurrency. And, and that dynamic between um, somebody reading, some, somebody saying that the structure has its own life and direction 
which would what Karl Marx would say that we would eventually end up logically in a particular society. That's not true. It happens between people. And it's a reflective sort of loop of, of people interpreting each other's uh, behavior. So, so the stock market would be one example. Another one would be technologists that say technology will lead us to a destination that we already know, like the singularity or, you know, there are ideas like that. Uh, where these, where the, you know, Anthony Giddens and Scott Lash and others, as I remember it was a while back, but they would say, well, that depends on how we interpret it and what kind of interaction happens between structure and actor. Um, so that was thoughtful, I thought, and it sort of took down a lot of the myths of the things that was dominating when I grew up, which was, you know, Karl Marx was pretty important. Uh, um, and and where, where the future was determined. Um, and this is, you know, individual lives was structured by something that had a direction and um, you couldn't do anything about, <laughs> which was feels bonkers in a way. So yeah, almost sort of disempowering, right? To like remove this agency. We can argue whether it's, it's an illusion of free will or actually free will, but this locus of control that we can sort of have internalize and have and believe that we can sort of control our own lives and have some choice can be empowering, but that's a whole other debate. I'm very interested in a couple of things you brought up because I'm actually taking a class on this. I'm taking a class on um, tech, nature, and values, or actually I should say nature, tech, and values, because my professor always says nature comes first. And you sort of propose this um, notion about climate change and all these sort of disasters we're having, and also the technological changes that are happening in our society, right? With the bomb drills that you said, bombs are clearly technologies or the stock market or cryptocurrency, right? Um, or the singularity, all these technologies that are interacting with us and with nature and sort of creating this effect that now we call the Anthropocene. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this, given that um, I recently read uh, Martin Heidegger's question concerning technology, an extremely dense piece, but sort of on these lines of, you know, there's this destining of technology that it's going in a certain direction, but he sort of warns us against the dangers of technology. Um, and I'm curious to know your thoughts on, on technology, how you conceptualize it, what the essence of it is, and how does that interact with nature and, and the sort of like disasters that we're creating in today's world? That's a ton of things of which I don't know much. Um, but if we start with that essay, it's a good essay. Um, and it, it was written in the 70s. I no, wait, earlier than that. 1954. Uh, 1950. That's incredible. Like how right. early he saw that, and his examples of technology were how how um, water was harvested as um, as a source of energy on the Rhine River, like very very, very and airplanes um, and things like that. Where today we're talking about you know deep learning <laughs> or or you know pretty advanced different technologies, but already then he saw that technology had a different, uh, he calls it 
he says that has nothing to do with technology. He calls it technicity. So it's a it's a way of us seeing ourselves and seeing our he calls it being. So so technicity or technology, let's call it that, is a way that we look at ourselves. Um, and the 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 word he describes it's a German word which is gestell, uh, and it basically means a standing reserve. So we see the Rhine River as a standing reserve of energy. Um, we see wood, the woods, not as God's creation or as um, um, the, well, the create, the, something that has a sacredness to it. It's just a pile of, of wood that we can use to build things. So we see the woods or the river as a source of, as a resource. And uh, his concern is that, and that's different from before. That might have been different from a thousand years ago during the, you know, or in some places in the world. But, but, but he then says that's something, that idea of seeing ourselves as resources, uh, seeing the nature as resources, but also ends up seeing ourselves as resources and seeing each other as resources that are flexible, harvestable, uh, uh, you know, always available to us. And of course, I mean, in big companies, we talk about human resources, right? So, so we see ourselves and others as flexible, interchangeable pieces of resource in a way. And he says, that's when you start seeing yourself as resources, you end up in a place where um, God is gone. And, and by God, he doesn't mean the God of, of the, uh, Abraham. Uh, he, he means the, the, the magic of the world uh, or this, the, the, um, this, the sense that something uh, is more than just resources. Let's say it that way. That's not completely precise. But so that, so, so that essay describes maybe what human resources are today, where, where you look at people, you know, the language in companies is that people are full-time equivalents. Mm -hmm. So, or they say headcount, that's another word for it, right? Where, where we look at, at each other as resources that are available to be optimized. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and when you do that, you end up in a dark spot. And, you know, he ends up saying, only a God can help us. Um, mm -hmm. And he doesn't mean the return of, you know, the Bible or or the Torah or something like that. He means as 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 the so, as the main center of of being. He 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 means um, um, more than just seeing each other as resources. Mm. It's unclear what he really means, and he ends up being. He's almost like a uh, he almost is like a pagan kind of. Uh, um, uh, I don't know. He, 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 sees, he sees moments where the gods arrive mm -hmm. as the, 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 as an agreeable thing. Mm -hmm. as a, so it's an incredible essay and kind of dark. Yes, exactly. And very, very dense and confusing, sort of leaving people in an ambiguous space to uh, reconcile for ourselves, but to sort of tie in a couple of these ideas um, 
you spoke about how Heidegger sort of mentions that we have started to see the world in a very objective sense and looking at them as standing reserves, basically resources to be able to harness and exploit and like create new value out of. And then we think that, oh, we are creators. We are creating this. But there's another essay that I recently read by Barry Wendell called Two Economies. It's a fantastic read, a short essay where he says that, no, we don't actually create any of this. We are not creating value, right? In economics and our modern day society, we say we are generating value. No, we're simply converting value. We're simply restructuring the value that nature or God or whatever we want to call it has, has created. And uh, Barry Wendell sort of brings about this idea that there are two economies. One economy is our little economy, our industrial sort of economy that is limited by our own human perception. And then there is the kingdom of God or the greater economy where everything is accounted for. And that's sort of the godly notion that we have sort of become ignorant towards. And hence, because of our ignorance and our sort of loss of perception or maybe looking at things in our own little worlds and bubbles in an objective way has made us lose touch with all these things and almost in touch with ourselves, right? He's sort of talking about how technology is revealing to us our own essence as human beings and how we're sort of losing our, our own way. Now, I'm wondering how do you reconcile this given that, you know, you work in a space where you're dealing with organizations and a structure that is based on these values of capitalism and of looking at things as resources. I mean, even the language, I think, looking at the linguistics of it completely changes the way we look at it. And the more I'm sort of fed with this knowledge of, you know, this is the way you, this is an employee, not a human being. That is two completely different person, people, right? This is a colleague, not a friend or a human being, completely changes the relationship we have with our own reality, with our own structures, when with our own sort of the people around us. So how do you sort of reconcile this tension of being in a structural system that is fueled by capitalism and certain ways of seeing that encourages us to look at everything as resources to be capitalized and exploited and create value out of? And yet it's this sort of little economy that we're, you know, like bubbling off in and thinking that we're great and we're gods and we're doing all these great things. But really, it seems like we're destroying a lot of things. So how do we sort of, my question is, how do we reconcile that tension that at least I feel, given that I am in a business school and yet thinking about these things? Right. Um, Wendell Berry is an is a interesting person. And he has a view on farming, particularly, right? And food um, that is um, very sort of farmer's market, um, um, sort of Alice Water kind of look at it, where you could say, well, uh, we need mass scale industrial um, agriculture in order to feed the amount of people we are in the world. And, and there's a, you know, there's a discussion there. Um, so, Wendell Berry, although beautiful and and um, has a sort of a back to the land uh, kind of attitude, uh, it's also a little too hippie for me um, in some ways. Um, so that's just that. But on the other hand, you know, the little island I grew up on was uh, the main source of income was cod fishery. So 
basically fishermen going out um, uh, harvesting enormous amounts of cod uh, from uh, the Baltic Sea. And then in, I think in 1982, it was banned overnight. So the, because it was overfished radically. So it was very palpable that my friends, uh, particularly, I mean, mainly fathers lost their jobs. Uh, and then because they were out at sea harvesting cod. And so the, so the connection to nature was quite real. Um, and you could sort of see the world as many layers of, of ancient technologies like uh, 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 growing and harvesting grain and cereal. And then on top of that, sewage systems. And on top of that, you know, uh, building systems and so on. And we just live in, in this top, top, you know, on top of all that, in the, you know, not everywhere in the world, but in, let's say, in New York City, and, and, and discuss deep learning, which is absurd if the, you know, if it's just the carpet is pulled under your, or the rug is pulled under your uh, feet, like, at least what I saw when I grew up, that, that the relationship to nature is pretty real. Um, and when it collapses, it's dramatic and heartbreaking. Uh, so... I suppose that's not really an answer, but I don't know what I think about do, it. Do you I, think we can coexist? I mean, one side there's um, Wendell, who's, like you said, a little bit too hippie, I guess, a little impractical, given the scale of things. Uh, and on the other side, we have perhaps capitalistic notions of like, let's just scale this. Who cares? Let's just look at these as resources and exploit it and scale it and whatnot. Do you think that these two sort of notions or ways of thinking can coexist and that we can create a balance? Because both have their pros and cons, right? Like capitalism does enable us to exchange and trade and um, create new information and uh, recreate value or, you know, sort of change value uh, and meet our needs, essentially our human needs. Um, but at the same time, there are certain negative externalities and trade-offs to it. So the question that I often grapple with is, you know, how can we sort of create a world where we can minimize these negative externalities? Perhaps how can we expand our perceptions of our economy to go from this little economy to connecting with the greater economy? I mean, sometimes I think the answer is big data, you know, collect more information about more things that are happening. If drilling the earth is, you know, creating certain externalities, then measure those externalities and ask these people to pay for it you know if we can measure the truth although like that's a whole other concept and maybe we can never measure or know the truth but collect more information and data and then use those that data to to create a bigger economy not such a small little like economy that is in our own world ignoring our the externalities and continuing to create the, create this damage what if we could use for perhaps technology and data to be able to expand our economy and create a coexistence within these sort of contrary views of seeing. And I'm curious to know your thoughts on this because you sort of, in your book, speak about how we need human intelligence in a world of big data. So sort of bringing about the dangers of big data or like how that's not the only answer. So I'm wondering, how do you see the sort of answer or path moving forward? I mean, I. It's easy to, and very popular today, to knock on capitalism. And it's a very easy answer to say the reason why we're nervous about our relationship to the environment, let's say, uh, is because of that. 
But on the other hand, I mean, it's pretty clear that it pulled more than a billion people out of out of poverty the last 20 years. So it's a little bit easy to sit in New York City and have abstract conversations about uh, uh, capitalism as a structure when when clearly global trade has been quite helpful to a lot of people. So, so I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert in, in any, any, any of this. Um, so, so, but big data, well, I, it's, we don't call it in that anymore, do we? I mean, it was sort of fashionable for 10 years to call, talk about big data, it, a little bit old fashioned now. Now it has different words, but it's the same idea that if we just get enough information, we can make a model of the world uh, that gives us full transparency to what's going on and we can predict the future. And, um, you know, I think we're, right now we're hopefully at the end of a, of, a, of a virus situation in the world that I wonder if big data predicted, right? I mean, and it didn't uh, predict that and it, it couldn't predict any of the things that happened. Um, and I think the, many of the companies that I was involved in in the last two years, they said we spent you know hundreds of millions or sometimes billions of dollars on big data systems, and now that we're in chaos in in a, in a very difficult situations where we don't know how to invest and where to invest or pull back or hire people or fire people, where is big data now? We need it when we need it, and. That doesn't mean gathering information is wrong. Information is wrong. That doesn't mean algorithms that can get us predictions we can interpret is wrong at all. I'm actually a huge fan of it. Um, but but on the other hand, um, as the only one, I mean, as the only input, uh, I, I, I've seen I've seen that where the trust in a technology. Uh, it becomes so high that people lose their minds and 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 start uh, uh, thinking that they can make a, a perfect model of the future. Um, and it just strikes me, you know, if you go back to reflexivity, that that's untrue. Um, we can't predict the stock market. Uh, at least people have tried, but uh, I think it's fair to say that that's difficult. Um, and uh, and maybe haven't maybe it's not happened yet. So I suppose, I mean, I'm not against data. I'm a huge fan of, of the experiments that are happening. I think it's a big, it's a, it's exciting. I mean, what's going on. I think unsupervised learning is, is one of the most exciting things I've learned about for a long time, or learned about, heard about, and, and try to be interested in. Uh, but thinking it's the only model and it'll explain everything, that's just ridiculous. And it's a misunderstanding of us, who we are, how we react to things, uh, how our world makes sense to us and how meaning gets infused in our lives or is there already. So, so it's, it was just the hoopers of it and the hyperbole around it that annoyed me. Um, and then of course, uh, for me, because I, I teach in a, in, a, in a school in New York that has a heavy focus on on the humanities, and because I I like historians and art historians and find you know uh, literary criticism and so on, it's just a preference I have. Um, I, I at that point five years ago, and maybe it's better or worse now, but at the point when I wrote the last book, 
uh, it was it was bad in the sense that people that were interested in art history, kids that were interested in studying art history or history or um, you know comparative literature or music, um, were discouraged by their parents to do so because if they studied computer science, they could get a job quicker. Um, or they needed an MBA in order to, um, you know, get a job in the future. And that was too bad because I don't think it's true. I don't think it's true that if you study philosophy or something like that, that, that you'll end up broken and homeless. Um, I, th I think you can use it for tons of things and it's an incredibly practical tool in the everyday. And I, ju I just saw the history departments empty and, and uh, funding go away and the best students that could have studied philosophy end up against really against their will and against their best interests and against their, you know, what they find interesting in life ended up studying computer science or something like that, that they didn't want to. And it's, you know, that's not great for them. It's not great for all of us that, you know, history departments are falling apart because I mean, we better study history, don't we? So, so there was just this sort of, negative attitude to the humanities and parts of the social sciences like anthropology or sociology or something like that, that I, I thought was incredibly stupid and annoying. Uh, and I just wanted to write a book about that, that that's untrue and not great for anyone. I could certainly see your annoyance and feel your frustration in the book, um, you know, especially with the criticism of Silicon Valley or um, certain firms like IDEO and like their kinds of ways of doing, which can be sort of, you know, I'll not say much about it, but I want to get to the point of juxtaposing the humanities and on the other hand, what people call more practical sort of studies like, like business and technology. It's weird you bring this up, like this point of history, because uh, just yesterday in one of my classes, I was interacting with the new person and he was extremely like motivated about, you know, completely profit driven and wanted to like become an investment banker and all these sorts of things. And then when I asked him, what are you really passionate about, man? He said, you know, man, like I, I used to be a history and politics nerd. I love history. But given my circumstances, the structures going back to reflexivity, I know it's not practical. I can't go down that path. And I've sort of like forgotten about it. I need to if I want to live a stable life, if I want to live a good life, um, I need to go down the path of, you know, investment banking or finance or business. And that's where I think the way is to go. And that's where even my parents think and given my circumstances, I must do this. If I become a historian, like there's no job I'm going to get, it's going to pay me like $10,000, $20,000. And there's no chance that it's going to be valued. So given these notions that still exist about the humanities, I'm wondering if you could share a little bit more about the value of humanities in the context of business and technology and, and what people usually consider to be practical things that create progress in society and how these things are, you know, just like soft and fuzzy things that don't matter. Could you share from your practical, like your own experiences, why they do matter? Right. You operate at a big scale, like, <laughs> like very, very high in the sky. Um, well, I think it's too bad for him. Um, and I don't think it's true, but I get it. You know, if you, if you go to 
university and you in America in particular, I mean, where it's so expensive, it's, 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 it's unattainable. And, you know, particularly if you, if you have to pay it yourself, then you end up in deep debt. So I absolutely get it. Um, and I, I come from, of course, a country where education is paid for and by the state or through taxation, which I very much support that you have a taxation system so that people can um, have access to education and healthcare and so on. But, but um, so it's, I think it's too bad for him. And I, and I think if you, if you want to go into investment banking, I don't think history is unreasonable. I think actually his history can inform a lot of things in investment banking. Um, that, yeah. So, so I would hope that he would still be interested in history and, uh, you know, be inert about that. Um, I, I don't think it, there's anything wrong in learning how to financial modeling work and, and, you know, so on. But, um, but I just wish pe people would follow their interests a little more, because I think if you do that, you get depth and you have energy about it and you can use it for many things. Um, and I think some of the best investors in history studied philosophy or history or art history, some of the biggest CEOs, some of the, you know, if you want to talk money, like the highest earners in the world, they actually, you know, have a liberal arts background. So I don't think this very functional view of education is very good, but it comes out of a broken business model of paying $60,000 for, you know, for an education. It's unbelievable. Um, so I get it. I understand, but it's too bad. Yeah. And the education system is something I love to speak about. I'm super passionate about, but um, yeah, that's a whole other conversation for another day. But the point that I learned from this is that the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves that are shaped by the stories that we tell ourselves in the world, right? These memes that spread through the world that create culture and these sort of notions that we go down um, are super important, right? I recently read Daniel Dennett who spoke about uh, consciousness being explained where he said, um, words and stories are to human beings similar to what webs are to spiders or what beavers are to, sorry, dams are to beavers. Right. Stories are what create us. We simply tell stories. That's like the most natural thing. And I believe that, you know, one of the reasons I'm doing this is because I'd like to bring out stories that give a new way of seeing things, because that's when we'll start to see a possibility of how things possibly could be in a different way, a new narrative for our own lives. And I found that extremely powerful for me when I read your book and your article, especially. And I'm wondering if you could share the story specifically of the anthropologist walks into a bar. What, the, what do you see and how did you apply anthropology as a sort of social science in this context of a bar trying to solve a business problem? Could you share that story with us? Yeah, it's a long time ago. And that article is, what, eight years old or something like that? It's an old article. But I think the title grabs people because it has the name bar in it, which is, of course, exciting. I think we need to go to bars right now, but, but, um, but I'm not an anthropologist, uh, and I've, but I like ethnography, 
which is a, a tool developed primarily by anthropologists, uh, which is observation of people um, and um, observation in the context they're in. So it's not extracting data about how many steps they moved or where their GPS is or what they uploaded on Facebook. It's observation of them in of us in context. And in this particular case, it's a very large brewery that uh, I, I was asked to look at their relationship to bars. And of course, they sell their product there. Um, and, uh, and, and we just looked at that. We looked at how, what it's like to run a bar. Um, what's it like to, or a pub, uh, because a lot of this was in England. Um, what's it like to do that? And of course, there are pub chains and they're, you know, and so on. But most of the pubs are, have an owner um, that have their identity invested in, in that bar uh, or that pub and that have people come and often the same people and so on. It's, a, it's an important thing uh, in, a, in, a, in any culture, really, that, that there are these I mean, watering holes, it's called that. Um, so, so there's so much identity involved and so much beauty, really, in, in, in these places and what they mean for our communities. Yet this beer company that we looked at, or this brewery, they thought that if they just took it, that the way to sell more of their product was to advertise and to advertise was to take their logo and their, you know, their corporate identity and just splash it everywhere uh, so that their names would be in front and center of everything. And if you think about that, I mean, somebody that runs a bar, builds, you know, has that as a, as, a, as a livelihood, have these people coming in just um, covering their place up in their logo uh, is annoying. Um, so what we found was all this stuff that they make, and in this case, it was, I think it was 80, 80 million euros, 100 million euros worth of stuff that they used in England alone that they made. So that's umbrellas and and uh, you know t-shirts and banners and all kinds of things that they then give the bars in order to convince them that they should sell more of their stuff it ends up in the basement nobody wants it uh, so we found we thought that well, how about we what the advice we gave was how about not doing that how about cutting that so reducing the cost of 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 doing this because it's against the bar owner it's um, ends, it's ineffective because it ends in the basement. All the sales reps that drive around and are supposed to give these t-shirts and umbrellas and crap to, to, to the bars just end up throwing it out because they know it doesn't work. So it was just this, by looking at bars and looking at pubs and looking how that whole world works, we could see that the way they approached it was not only ridiculous, but counterproductive. So by cutting cost, we could increase the likelihood of people in the bars liking this company and therefore presenting, buying their stuff, presenting their stuff to customers. So it was really a cost reduction exercise, but from a, ended up as that, it was not the beginning of it, but it ended up as that. And it came all, it all came from just looking at normal people doing normal things in, in, in these community 
places that bars and pubs are. Um, so it had a it had a business problem at its heart, right? It's how do you approach your market? Um, but the source of information came through spending, you know, a lot of time with owners of and users of, or you know, regulars of bars and pubs. So I, th I think that was the idea of the story that that um, innovation can be informed by ethnographic practices and innovation doesn't have to be adding things. It doesn't have to be designing new things. It might as well be just not doing things and reducing things. Uh, not necessarily just for the sake of cutting costs, but for the sake of improving relationships between a company and its market. Um, so the, yeah. I think I think it's a long time ago, but that's that's how I remember it. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing. And um, one thing that really stood out to me in the process that you used was the field of phenomenology and how you reframed a business problem as a phenomenon. I found that extremely fascinating because, you know, studying at a business school, the first thing we're told is I look for problems and see them as opportunities. And that usually leads down to parts where like now we're just coming up with random ideas, trying to just increase it in any way we can without really getting to the essence or core of it. And it seems like by reframing the way you sort of used language, completely changed the way you were observing is what I'm guessing. So I'm wondering what makes you say that we should reframe problems as phenomenons and how can one actually do this? Because a lot of people listening to this are business students thinking about starting new entrepreneurial endeavors, looking for problems to solve. And why would you say we can perhaps restructure this as phenomenons and how can we do that? I mean, the idea of problem solving is of course at the heart of modern management consulting and therefore MBA classes and, and so on. But if you, if you look at, and there are a lot of problems to be solved, by the way, and I'm a big fan of that kind of analysis in some, in some situations but it assumes error, that there are errors that we can correct, right? That, that there's a problem that we can, we can solve, which is that there are errors in the way a company does something or in the way a product category works or in the way a, you know, a service work. Um, but what if it's not an error? What, what, you know, how, how, how about we assume that we can add to the understanding of, of, of these important interactions between us and, and markets. And um, rather, than, rather than always looking at things from an error correction kind of prop point of view, which is kind of a negative view of the world. I mean, I, I'm so impressed by some of these companies that they, what they can make, I mean, it's incredible. Um, and, and assuming that they're making th that they're doing things wrong is a way for consultants to and and you know to sell products to people to make them to, to sell their service to people to 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 point out problems rather than maybe um, look at phenomena um, and that's the way I do it. It's not the only way, but it's one way. And that is instead of looking at uh, instead of looking at decision-making between two products or between a product and a price, you look at what's the phenomenon in the first place. So that would be, what's it like to run a bar? You know, um, instead of looking at 
how do we sell more TVs? What's a TV's role in a family? And how is media consumption changing? That's a human way of looking at it. Um, instead of thinking about how one cancer product, one cancer uh, medication um, uh, uh, is bought and well sold to doctors that then prescribe it to people, then look at what's it like to live with cancer? What's it like to be told that you have cancer? What's it like to be around someone that you love that was told that they have cancer? And what's it like to be a doctor giving that message to people? Is that a clinical thing? Is that a cynical thing? Is this something you just learn to live with? Or, you know, and so on. And you can learn a lot about what's that, what that's like as a human. And therefore you could design new things that, um, that are, or, or add, subtract, I mean, take things away um, that's based on the human experience of it. Uh, and phenomenology is the study of human experience. And I, I, ethnography is one way of getting that. Statistics is another, big data is a third, you know, and so on. There are many ways you could do this, but it's trying to understand what a human phenomenon, what a human phenomenon, what, what a human phenomenon is, how to describe it the best you can based on whatever information you can gather. Um, and that's a good start. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think insight is the driver of innovation uh, rather than just problem solving. I think mm. human insight is great, is a, is a great way of developing a business or, mm -hmm. you know, anything really, um, rather than always looking at it as errors. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what you just said really energizes me because it aligns a lot with my philosophy that I've been sort of trying to embody of not seeing things in a binary. When we see things as good and bad, right and wrong, error and, you know, whatever the opposite solution, perhaps, we start to like see the world in a very structural way, or maybe that's not the right word, but perhaps what um, uh, Heidegger was trying to say, like see things as resources or see things as problems to be fixed. And when we're trying to fix everything, it seems like it's having a externality, right? I, I'm not sure if you've seen that game in, um, you know, these video game places where you hit one thing and something else pops up and then you hit that and then something else pops up. It seems like this problem solving method usually ends up to do that. And when we ask questions that just say, how can we increase this? Somewhere underlying that is an assumption that increasing that is the way to go. Whereas maybe it's not, maybe we need to step back and see it from a non-binary perspective and not see everything as a problem to be fixed, including ourselves. I mean, the whole notion of utopia is now is kind of coming from that, that no, utopia is not one day right now is bad. And one day we'll have a good, perfect world is not the way to go. It's to realize that not everything is bad, that the nature is in the way that it is for a certain reason. <clears throat> And that if we can have this sort of non-binary way of looking at things, then somewhere we're developing empathy to be able to get to the core of our own human experience and how we experience things. And then once we do that, we start to uncover and reveal insights that we previously were unable to see. And then once that happens, perhaps we could apply that in a more sort of framework, binary way of thinking. But what I'm hearing from you is to go beyond the binary and get to the essence, to empathize and look at the relationship 
that people have in certain contexts, in certain activities, and then based on that, make whatever decisions that we are trying to do in a business context. Yeah, Would you say that's that's exact. What what I'm what are you trying to say? I uh, um maybe um maybe it is. Uh, I mean, there are problems, right? If you if you go to East Baltimore or Northern Ethiopia right now there are problems to be solved um, and and maybe some of the things we're talking about about now are luxurious you could imagine um but but i i don't know i've just found that insight and understanding often comes through this suspending judgment and trying to just look and listen like shut up and just look and listen where i i think a lot of some of, of, of the education coming out of business schools are a little more confident than that and, and, and sort of come with a set of assumptions to, to a problem that, as if they know, right? So I, th I think there's some sort of, I suppose, epistemological humility um, that is helpful uh, and, and, and frankly effective. Um, it just takes a different attitude and a little at a different kind of time um but also fun i mean it's fun to under try to understand the world if you make cars every day or computers every day wouldn't it be nice to understand mobility and computing you know from a from a sort of a what role it plays in in people's life beyond the platitudes and the simple answers um i think i think that's a that's a way i i enjoy looking at the world and 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 it's not the only one, but it's one way um, of looking at it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I really appreciate this way of looking at things. And it sort of reinforces my own passion for studying the social sciences and trying to understand why are things the way they are. Uh, and then using that in context to solve like some dire problems and complexity, right? reconciling that. Now, I am a fan of social sciences and humanities, and I'm not sure if those words are interchangeable. But I also came across certain like counter arguments to this that I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on, mm -hmm. uh, because it connects to exactly what you were saying in your book. So um, the essayist Nassim Nicholas Taleb writes uh, on Twitter that the opposite of education is not ignorance. It is education in social sciences. So the question that I thought was, well, is he trying to say that social science is leading to ignorance or that? essentially like social science isn't really a science you know he was trying to get to the epistemological ways that we're trying to know like trying to figure out how do we know what we know and having this sense that you know social sciences are not really a science because the way I understand it from my own hum humble readings of it is that anything that's social leads to groupthink because it's based on consensus whereas individuals perhaps scientists right physicists uh, chemists or whatnot uh, are searching for truth, right? Not for consensus. And so that's what I understood as the reason for why Taleb and many other people have been like sort of criticizing social sciences. But on the other hand, I saw your sort of notion in your book about culture and not individuals, right? Which sort of is uh, antithetical to what uh, the previous argument that I just made. And that you said in one of the previous podcasts that you're interested more in cultures rather than in individuals. 
So how do you sort of reconcile these two, the thesis and antithesis, and sort of maybe come to a synthesis within this? Right. I'm a huge fan of his. I mean, I think he's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. That doesn't mean I agree with everything, but but I think he he you could read it in two ways. You could read it as if the world can be described with mathematics um, and almost look as our lives as physics, right? Which I think is one way of looking at it, but I don't think that's necessarily the whole picture. I think what he believes about, I think what he says, and I'm putting words in his mouth now, might be that the social sciences have left the... And part, big parts of the social sciences have left um, the ideal of trying to understand the truth about something. That there, there is a postmodern streak or a postmodern, um, maybe even Marxist-inspired um, uh, sort of attitude in some parts of the social sciences that already assume that the world is built in a particular way of uh, you know, capitalism and oppressors versus oppressed and, uh, you know, the logic that that Marxism is about and that parts of the postmodern movement have been um, um, inspired by, let's say it that way. And I, and I think if, I think he's annoyed by that. Um, so I, I don't think he, I, would, I wouldn't think that social sciences is against what he believes in. I think he might even find it inspiring if it's done in with the attitude of trying to understand rather than conclude before you even start looking. And I think that's pervasive in the social sciences. And I think that's why people are annoyed by it. I think that's why people go get away from it, uh, you know, and, and why I think lots of the social sciences have painted itself into a corner uh, where nobody listens. Um, I've heard that, I don't know if it's true, but I heard that the average anthropology paper is read by less than one person, you know, after it's published. And that's maybe something to think about. And, and I think that's what he's, he means is it's generally irrelevant uh, what's happening in some of these sociology departments. That doesn't mean social science is wrong. It just means that it's carried out in a way that's uh, ridiculous. Um, so that's probably, I don't know, I would, I would hope that's what he means. I know he's also a great mathematician, and some mathematicians believe that, that the social world and human meaning can be described formularically the way that you can describe the laws of nature. Mm. Uh, and um, I, I think that's fundamentally untrue. Mm-hmm. You can try. And it's one input, but thinking that humans can describe, be described the same way as atoms or bacteria can be described, I think is fundamentally wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would say that this connects to one of the other principles you laid down in your book of thin data versus thick data, where yes, this, this sort of Popperian view of pure science view of using mathematics to explicate and like keep breaking things down can bring us to one level, but there's a whole other ocean beneath that, that has been not yet discovered. And perhaps rather than explicating when we can enter the world of implicating and looking at it from this more human perspective of what comes out from within, 
um, perhaps things can start to change. And I do, I do feel very hopeful to hear these things because these are certain things I'm passionate about. So it adds to my own bias that these things are great and I should continue going down this path. Um, but in any case, the last thing that we love to ask all our guests on our podcast um, is what is your utopia? What does that look like? Maybe it could be today, maybe it could be one day, but given that we've you know, covered and dabbled with a lot of different concepts going from reflexivity to technology and the questions concerning technology and the way we sort of perceive things as standing reserves and resources and the world of business versus sort of other notions of that you may be a little bit more hippie of just going back to the nature and to our roots. Um, and then looking at the social sciences, the humanities and its role in, in solving business problems. All that being said, I'm wondering what does your utopia look like? Um, I mean, there's a whole political story um, that I won't get into because I'm not a relevant person to ask other than I'm just a normal voter. Um, but for me, what I hope is that people would start more, um, oh, oh, that observation of uh, uh, each other becomes a stronger practice and that we train people in and um, use uh, rather than dismiss um, by saying that there are models that describe everything. Um, and, and that means slowing down so and suspending judgment rather than having ready-made opinions for everything. Uh, so I suppose utopia would be a little slower um, and a little less opinionated and loud um, and maybe more about listening and looking rather than opining and pontificating. Um, that would be good. Um, and, I, and I think it's something you can teach and, and learn and, and, um, and we know how to do it. Humans know how to do it. Uh, we just maybe get overwhelmed by our surroundings and, and the input we get. Uh, so we end up passing along easy answers and believing in simple models of the world when, when it's actually rich and beautiful and magical. Um, so I, I'd, 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 I'd think Utopia would be a little slower. Christian, thank you so much for sharing all your insights and a vision of your Utopia. It's something that I definitely believe in. This is a notion I've been trying to practice to just slow down every day rather than always being on time. Um, I try to be in time and flow and just slow down. And it seems to be very, very helpful to me, sort of counterintuitively, it helps me actually become more fast when I'm trying to be on time and be productive. Um, so I love this notion. And yeah, my gratitude and um, thank you for, for sharing everything you shared today. Thank you so much. And encourage your co-students to um, follow their interests and the areas that they want to be go deep in um, yeah. I think that'd be good for them I completely agree and that's one of my purposes in life is to build communities and uh, create spaces where people can explore their 
inner innate curiosity and passions and just follow their sort of heart in that sense. And to be able to find this coexistence of these contraries that we're often thrown by from society. So that is my goal. And yeah, I really thank you for uh, illuminating light over some of these areas that I wasn't clear on. And I'm sure a lot of listeners um, hadn't thought about or sort of were struggling with. I will. Okay.